The following interview contains some colorful language, very familiar to people working in marketing and sales, but probably not suitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. This is Oren Claff, author of Flip the Script, getting people to think your idea is their idea. And you're listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas so you can succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction and save you time. This show is produced by my marketing firm. We work with manufacturers to help them grow. If you're a manufacturer and are serious about growing your business, check out our guide to lead generation for manufacturers on our website, salesartillery.com, or Google lead generation for manufacturers, and you'll find the guide atop the organic results. And special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Hrefs. If getting more of the right kind of traffic to your website is a priority, but doesn't seem to be happening, you need to check out Hrefs. Hrefs is an all-in-one SEO tool set that gives you what you need to rank your website in Google and get a lot more of the right kind of search traffic. We use it here at Artillery. Now, a subscription to Hrefs can run in the hundreds of dollars per month, but Hrefs is offering a seven-day trial that gives you full access to every tool, feature, and report for only $7. For details, go to hrefs.com, spelled A-H-R-E-F-S.com. And if you get the seven-day trial, I'm going to mail you a little something special. I'll have details in a few minutes. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Oren Claff to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, Flip the Script, Getting People to Think Your Idea is Their Idea, published by Portfolio Penguin. Oren Claff is one of the world's leading experts on sales, raising capital, and negotiation. His first book, Pitch Anything, is required reading throughout Silicon Valley, Wall Street, and the Fortune 500 with more than 1 million copies in print worldwide. He's written for Harvard Business Review, Inc., Advertising Age, Entrepreneurs, been featured in hundreds of periodicals, podcasts, and blogs. He is an investment partner in a $200 million private equity investment fund. And interesting fact, he bought the actual 1968 Camaro from the Metallica video, I Disappear. Oren, congratulations on Flip the Script, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Hey, I appreciate that nice intro. Uh, do we have to do anything else or can we just wrap up? Yeah, that's that's pretty much it, uh, except to say, so you you touched the steering wheel that James Hetfield touched. Is that is that correct? Uh, I more than touched it, absolutely. Well, that's uh, one of many, many stories uh, that you talk about in the book. And I just have to say that the book uh, reminded me a bit of like a Bob Berg book or the book by the Jeffrey and Brian Eisenberg, where it's these, these stories. Now, in their case, they're making the stories up. These are actual stories that happened to you. And I've always wanted to interview the most interesting man in the world. And, and I think I'm doing it because these uh, you change the names of the companies and the people, but the stories in your book... Here's the problem I had with it, Oren Claff, is that I got so engrossed in the stories that I started to worry that I was missing out on the the, the bigger yeah. points you were trying to make about how to flip the script and get people to think their idea is your idea. Did you did you know that was going to be a problem for the reader? I didn't. What happened is in Pitch Anything, people said the last chapter melted my mind. Just you know, and that's the thing that they really kept saying over again, like the stories, the stories, the stories. So the last chapter in Pitch Anything is a big 
transcending story that wraps everything about the education of pitch anything up. And so in the new book, I just made every chapter the equivalent of the last chapter in pitch anything. And it was a huge push up way, uh, way too big of a goal, way too big of a dream to really be reasonably accomplished. So I had to get unreasonable, but yeah, to write eight huge stories like that and teach, have each one teach something. I died. This is actually not me. I died <laughs> writing it. Well I, th- well, I appreciate this last effort to, you know, keep your book alive and share it with all the listeners to the the marketing book podcast. I here's here's my sense. This was uh, there's never been a vegetables coated in mac and cheese better than what we have here. So when you're trying to feed the vegetables to the kids and you have to put it in something else and they get it all, I don't know. This was it, it was amazing and I I I like I said, I was starting to worry. Like I'm enjoying this story too much and then you tie it all together at the end and dag gone it it worked. So, so check me out one time. So did you have to read the book for the podcast or did you feel like the book was pulling you all the way through and you wanted to read it? Did you have to or did you want to? Well, I don't have to do anything, but I read every book before each interview for the Marketing Book Podcast. And then I get to talk to the author. So I did read it, but what happened was it would just took me on a completely different um, trajectory from most uh, sales and marketing books in a good way. Phew. Okay. We passed le- we're past level one on the video game of Doug's podcast. Okay. Okay. So no one forced me to read this. There was no gun to my head. So, and I, and I enjoyed reading it. So let me just read a quick excerpt from the beginning and then we can start getting into it. Here's the big idea in 81 words. I don't like being pressured into making a purchase, and I'm not alone. Over decades of being marketed, pitched, sold, and lied to, we've all grown resistant to sales persuasion. The moment we feel pressure to buy, we pull away. And if we're told what to do or what to think, our defenses go up. In other words, buyers don't put much trust in you and your ideas. However, everyone trusts their own ideas. Accordingly, today products are bought not sold. So, Oren, what is meant by flipping the script? And what's an example of someone thinking an idea that's been given to them is their idea? Oh, yeah. So, you know, this just started after Pitch Anything, I really started implementing those things, you know, frame control and raising status and the things that are in the book. And eventually, like over here in our office, and especially me, like I lost the art of closing because I didn't need to close anything. I didn't have any closing lines. So now if you come into my office and watch me pitch and close a deal, and you say, okay, I can't wait to write down Oren Claff's close. It sounds like this. Um, so guys, it looks like we're out of time. Oh, should do Any ideas on what to – and I go, oh, how do we work together? So I give you an example of Inception, You know, as I described it, flipping the script, Inception, closing without closing, ha- the way things are bought, not sold. A guy comes in my office not long ago, and we pitch him the, oper- the, the idea that we're going to sell his company. That's what we do. We buy and sell companies. So the meeting goes well. Nobody's going to decide in one meeting to let you be their investment banker and everything, and he leaves. Good. Meeting over. On to the next thing. Uh, about 60 seconds later, after leaving the front of the building, comes back in the door, and that's never good, right? Sometimes it means they went to their car and got their gun. <laughs> mm, I hate that. it when that happens. <laughs> Again, uh, white men can't jump. It's <laughs> it's never good. Have somebody leave and then come back in. So we go in the conference room. I literally don't know what's going on. It's like the Matrix, right? The, when you watch the movie, like I don't know what's happening in this movie. Most movies, I know what's going to happen next. Bad guys chase the good guys, whatever. Mm-hmm. So he takes out his checkbook and he writes a check for fifteen thousand dollars. We don't have something that costs $15,000. Like we sell investment banking. We have some digital products. Like it's, and so he goes, okay, here, we're, we're started. Uh, and, and let's talk later in the week and get things going. That is the result that happens over and over and over again of putting ideas in somebody's mind and letting them 
percolate in such a way that they come up with the idea that they have to work with you and they're chasing you. They're suggesting that you work together and you're not doing any kind of close at all. And that's the goal of this book to take you through the process of giving people your information, showing them how you do things, why you do things, how it's important and taking them through some ideas and then having them come up with the idea that they want to buy from you, that they want to work with you, they want to hire, you know, they want to hire you, they want to invest in you, they want to work with your idea. So that's an example of it happening, but it, but dozens of examples of it happening the exact same way where I'm in the middle of giving the information using this process and then finally somebody goes, "Well, you know, what are the next steps? How do we how do we put this together?" Boom, inception. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, so of all the things you talked about in the book, the one that really seemed to resonate with me, maybe it's because I've been on the receiving or the, I guess, you know, the victim end, the short end of the stick, was this issue of um, establishing uh, status or, or what you call dominance hierarchy. And after you explained it, I thought, man, I've, I've seen that happen, and it never really works out well. And the few times that I have called people on it, I had a I had a fighting chance. Can, so can you explain what this idea of status alignment is, and and why you really have to have it, or why if you don't have it, it really kind of never ends well? Yeah, I mean, I think you know if, if you go back up a level and we get work our, work our way back to the dominance hierarchy and status alignment. What happens is I see people get into deals, right? And and today, if you're on Instagram or any of social media in any sense, there's sort of this hustle porn, right? Oh, hustle. yes, and I hate that. Work harder, get up earlier, work later, take less breaks, you'll make something happen, mm-hmm. right? And my sense is the, the folks I work with and the guys I work with have $10 million, $50 million, $100 million, work with billionaires, as I'm sure you know you do as well. Those guys aren't hustling. When you're hustling, you're a hustler, right? And not only that, you're chasing clients and you're on a hamster wheel, right? And and when you see people who are really got business systems working, they aren't doing 10x, 20x, 50x, hustling, working all day. I know I don't. They're developing skills, applying those skills in processes that work and develop results, and they're doing more of that. Now, I, you know, I have a friend. I helped him. Uh, sell his company, uh, you know, maybe a hundred million dollar net worth. And, and he still works hard every day, but he sure isn't hustling. Right. And so what happens, is I see people get into a deal, maybe, I don't know, a, you know, a deal to me is sort of above $10,000, uh, you know, below $10,000. It feels a bit, you know, business B2C, but $10,000, $100,000, $250,000, million, they get into a deal and they stay in hustle mode, right? Working it really hard. Deals close when you set them up correctly. You have a problem that you solve. Your solution is differentiated. You've commoditized the competition. You've shown the buyer and established that you're an expert. There is some scarcity and you are moving them along to being the only option to solve their very difficult problem. Now, you can do all of that correctly. And deals still wiggle around. Why? Because in today's world, a buyer, especially if they spend hundred thousand dollars, a million dollars, whatever it is, has to go check with people. They have a lawyer, they have an accountant, they have a uh, you know a CPA, they have a CFO. They have to go talk to people. And so, if you are the only person on your side doing the selling, and on their side. There's a CFO, there's an analyst, there's a marketing person, there's purchasing, there's the end users, and you're the one person that has to deal with all those people. You're trying to close the deal from the low status position. I don't want to read people the book, Doug, but in but in essence, you know, I learned this from a very well-known Silicon Valley venture capitalist, private equity guy. In order to close a deal, analysts talk to analysts. Marketing people talk to marketing people, CFOs talk to CFOs, and the deal makers talk to deal makers, and the chairman or the CEOs talk to the CEOs. When you get that stuff out of alignment, you cannot close a deal. You have to be at the status level of your peer on the other side who you're closing with. So 
people who think they can hustle around this or they can fill all those roles or or everything like that don't understand the dominance hierarchy. There are hierarchies in business. There has to be alignment. You have to be aligned with your peer on the other side of the table. You can't be handling the analysts, the financial people, the marketing people, the chairman people, every question. That pushes you into the low status position. You're always available. You know, it's kind of the joke of uh, – I forgot what the movie was, but – you know, the guy who gives a girl his phone number, and he's like, hey, here's my pager. Here's my fax machine. You can call me on Sunday. If I'm not available, my uh, my grandma will pick up. Just give her your number. I'll get right back to you. If you need anything, just call me right away. I'll be available. So that pushes you into the low status position. You cannot sell or close from the low status position. Mm-hmm. More of a supplicant role. Yeah. I, I mean, in pitch anything, I said it this way, right? People want what they can't have. People chase that which moves away from them, and people only value that which they pay for. If you are answering and feeding everybody on the other side every question and being totally responsive, they are not chasing you. You are chasing them. And I think that ultimately is my big theme is most people are bad at selling, right? Uh, They're not bad at at explaining their features Mm -hmm. and their benefits and asking for the order and discounting, but that's not selling, right? That's called giving data and providing discounts. Most people are bad at selling, and it is because they end up chasing, and chasing is incredibly time-consuming. It's inefficient, and your one tool when you're chasing somebody is discounts. You have to frame up these deals in such a way that the buyer is chasing you, and you're allowing them to buy from you. And I understand that's a paradox. We want somebody's money. We want the contract. We want the agreement. All right. But, and, and so we want to be in service of them. We want to add value. We want to show them they're quality people. But when you're doing all those things, you are signaling that you're chasing. And whenever you're chasing somebody, they will continue to back away because they know that the further they hold out, the more price discount and the more terms you'll give them. You have to have them chasing you. And so these two books, you know, Pitch Anything, but specifically Flip the Script, is how to get people uh, chasing you and closing themselves so you aren't chasing them. If you're chasing somebody, your deal is going to end up in discounting mode until the price is low margin or, you know, below profitability in today's world. Right. So let's talk about a related, uh, one of the many building blocks you have in the book, which was related to status alignment. But first, let me say, you know, in, in sales, I think you'll hear the term bonding and rapport or having a, some sort of connection with the client, uh, the customer or the prospect. Explain what it, you mean in the book by status tip off. That was very different. And I would think a lot of people might think it's a similar thing, but it's it's not at all. Yeah. So I think ultimately what I see, you know, I've seen 80,000 salespeople train them either from stage in person through my courses. You know, I see a lot of salespeople and one to the next, you know, if you got a hundred salespeople, 99 of them start off like this. Hey, so what do you guys do this weekend? Did you see the big game? Did you watch the Olympics? Oh, what about the world, you know, women's world soccer team? You know, have you seen, did you see the debate? Look, uh, what did you do this weekend? Oh, fishing. I love fishing. You know, what kind of fishing do you do? And this is not true rapport. It's not true alignment, and it does nothing to put you guys at the same status. And I'll give you an example of this perfectly. Is uh, I've got, you know, I've got tons of cars, as you read in the book, mm-hmm. and uh, motorcycles, and, and motorcycles. You know, I probably got twenty five, thirty motorcycles, depending what's at what shop and what I actually own that <laughs> right. sold it. Wow. But you know, I've got motor. I'm I'm older than you guys or everybody. Yeah, I'm not the world's most interesting man. As you said, I'm just the world's oldest man. (laughs) (laughs) Not sure about that. All right. So, uh, you know, I've got, just call it 25 motorcycles, but they're all, I've owned a thousand motorcycles over the last 10 years. Wow. And the ones, now I got married and I have a baby, you know, I have a five-year-old and so I spend all my time there. I don't have time to do a lot of that stuff anymore, but you know, the motorcycles that I'm keeping are like have been cover of magazines. They won races, uh, historic races, and this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, guy walks in my office, uh, and and uh, he's actually a client. But we have this warehouse in the back of the office, full of these cars and motorcycles and that kind of thing. And he goes, "Oh yeah, I see some motorcycles." He goes, "When I was in college, I used to ride a Honda CB360T, right? In order to create 
And as you said, a status tip-off or alignment or rapport, like, oh, I had this motorcycle. You have these motorcycles. I don't give a fuck about your CB360T. That's the world's shittiest motorcycle, right? And the fact that you said that's the motorcycle that you had in college tells me, I don't want to be rude, but I never want to talk to you about motorcycles. <laughs> Uh-oh. Right? Yeah. Because – well, well th- let me put it differently. Like you walk into a guy's house and he's got four Ferraris, you know, and two Lamborghinis, uh, you know, and they're encased in glass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, you do too, right? <laughs> right. So then the guy says to you, hey, you know, my dad bought, you know, my dad, I don't want to pick on dads. You know, my uncle bought me a, a remote control Ferrari and I used to have a Toyota Celica that was red. And you're like, so what? Fuck off, right? <laughs> I mean, th- this is not relatedness. So- that's what you're doing when you're saying, oh, you love fishing? I love fishing. You know, you fish in Florida? Yeah, I went to Florida once. Oh, your sister went to Northwestern University? Yeah. Um, my best friend's sister went there once. Like this – people think that they're establishing rapport or relatedness or niceness, but you're actually accomplishing nothing or lowering your status when you're chasing these kinds of vague status alignments, mm-hmm. right? Until you can talk to someone – in their language, the way they talk to each other about their most important stuff, you won't be established at their level. We lose deals specifically on this one item. Guy comes in, uh, wants to raise $50 million, whatever it is, for his semiconductor company. If we don't talk semiconductors, even though we're the best firm to do the the engagement and really knowledge of semiconductors is not important to the deal, knowledge of finance is, right? right? Unless we – can say to him, oh, so you developed a new 0.01 micron, uh, you know, semiconductor at 23,000 gigahertz, and that's two years ahead of the Intel and AMD chips, and you're deployed in Google's next generation Pixel devices, uh, and you're not manufacturing in China, but in Canada, so you have faster turnaround time, and you're not having to use glass bead ceramic welding. Unless I can say that, I'm never talking to him in his language, right? And we never have credibility and have alignment of being at their level in their industry. So if we can say that just that much, you know, even if it's just a hundred words, then we're in. If we can't talk to someone in the language in which they talk to themselves, it's incredibly difficult to move on in the deal. And this one point uh, that we're talking about here costs us millions of dollars a year. Mm, wow. Yeah, was that the story? See, I got so involved in the story. Was that where they uh, went to the the ad, the ad agency from London went to the the car manufacturer in Eastern Europe and they brought a, a an actor and they spoke to them uh, in in their own language about what was important to them. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, and but well, I think through the book that theme is repeated in every chapter in every story mm-hmm. at the beginning. If you can't aligned talk to someone in the language of their business. You know, it's interesting in America, I don't know how it is in other cultures. You said, you know, you've got quite a lot of other cultures listening to the show. At least in America, we identify by what we do, right? Mm -hmm. We don't say, hi, nice to meet you, Doug. How many kids do you have? By the way, how many kids do you have? I didn't ask. Oh, thank you. I have two. Two kids. What what age uh, territory are they in? Uh, 21 and 24. Oh, so just um, uh, young kids. Yeah, compared to me, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Come here to you. <laughs> I have a five-year-old. So okay. uh, enjoy. Thank you. Yeah. So in the U.S., we don't walk up and say, Doug, you know, how many kids you have? Where did you go to school? Uh, what are your passions? What are your hobbies? You know, uh, what is your faith? What do you believe in? <laughs> That'd be pretty intrusive. Yeah. What are, you know, what's your, what's your, you know, truth to power? What movies do you enjoy? Do you like pina coladas and long walks in the rain? Well, those two I do, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, I, I assume that. But we go, what do you do? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So we identify with work. And so if you can't talk to someone in the language of their business, you know, the same language that's used with the same issues that they talk about, then they don't view you as a peer. And unless somebody views you as a peer, they will feel they have power over you and you will be selling to them, right? They will take the information that you have to give. Literally, while you're giving the information, they're looking up on the internet. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, They're fact-checking you and looking on the internet for another service or product that is less expensive, more available, or hopefully free, right? Mm-hmm. 
unless they view you as a peer, right? And so that's why I always feel like step one is unless a buyer views you in that peer status, uh, it becomes very difficult to to convince them, you know, your product or service um, has a has, has enough value that they should pay full price for it. Right, right. We're going to take a break here so I can tell you more about HRFs and a really sweet offer they have. If getting more of the right kind of traffic to your website is a priority, but it doesn't seem to be happening, you owe it to your business uh, and your career to check out HRFs. It's okay. You can thank me later. Hrefs is an all-in-one SEO tool set that gives you the information you need to rank your website in Google and get tons of the right kind of search traffic. We use it here at Artillery. A few of my favorite tools are Site Audit. It crawls your entire website and gives a comprehensive report on any issues that may be hurting your SEO performance. You're going to be surprised uh, and maybe a little embarrassed at what the Site Audit is going to find. If you're a marketer responsible for your website, you'll want to run this report before your boss does. And if you're an agency responsible for your client's website, you better run this report before your clients do. Uh, Another tool that's really cool is Site Explorer. This is where you can research any website, but especially your competitors. One popular way to use this is to figure out your competitors' marketing strategies by studying the keywords they rank for in search results and finding out the pages that bring them the most traffic from search. You can research anything from uh, how fast their search traffic is growing to which websites are linking to them to the pages on their website with the most backlinks. And another cool tool is Keyword Explorer. This is a great tool to have before you create more content for your site. It helps you discover thousands of great keyword ideas Uh, gauge how difficult it is to rank for them, and calculate their traffic potential. You can also find out what your potential customers are searching for online to help make sure that you're including the right keywords and content on your site. Now, a monthly subscription to Hrefs can run in the hundreds of dollars, but Hrefs is offering a seven-day trial that gives you full access to every tool, feature, and report for only seven So even if you don't end up subscribing, the reports that you can run are a phenomenal value. Seriously. Otherwise, if you've got money coming out the wazoo, hire an SEO firm and give them a king's ransom. But don't be upset when you find out they're using Hrefs to run the same reports that you can run. Also, just a bit of medical advice. If you've got money coming out the wazoo, you should probably get that checked. Now, are there other all-in-one SEO tools? Sure there are, and they're good. But in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, there's a link to an article about the nine most important features that Ahrefs has that no other SEO tool does. Check that out. To get the seven-day trial for just $7, visit hrefs.com. And that's spelled A H. R-E-F-S dot com. But wait, when you get that seven-day trial, I want you to forward your confirmation email to me at douglas at salesartillery.com, include your mailing address, and I will mail you, wherever you are in the world, a marketing book podcast bookmark and a laptop sticker and even a little thank you note just for you. And Even if you don't want me to send you anything, send me the email anyway so I can show Ahrefs how smart they were to support the Marketing Book Podcast, because otherwise they're not going to know I sent you. So help a brother out, yo. And now back to the show. Let me ask you about one other thing that I think uh, folks may really want to dive into in the book. And it was this idea of uh, what you call a flash roll, where you're establishing this, this expertise But it's not the way that I think a lot of people would envision it. This is something that focuses on a a really difficult problem the prospect has, and it should only take like 60 to 90 seconds to deliver it, or like you said, like 250 words. Explain this idea of a a flash roll. Yeah, so I mean, I kind of want people to experience it firsthand in the book, but let me approach it this way, right? If you think about giving a 
sales presentation, a pitch, selling someone your idea, asking somebody for money or investment in your company, you know, whatever it is that you want to put in front of people, walk into a room, get on a Skype, get on a TED stage, get on any kind of stage, uh, or, you know, even film a webinar or whatever it is. For me, there's three layers, right, that you have to be good at. So the first layer that you have to really conquer is the content layer, right? The what it is, why it's important, how the world is changing, the problem you solve, who else solves the problem, what, uh, what other solutions are out there, your specific solution, what it is specifically, how it works, the value proposition, the ROI, this key assumptions, the KPIs, uh, you know, who's on your team, who's going to deliver it, how much it costs, what the value proposition is specifically, and how the whole program works. That's just the content layer. Right. And mm -hmm. most people get that wrong. If you go to a pitch, they got the solution before the problem and uh, the comp the competition and, and who the management is and the idea <laughs> and the ROI. Everything's in the wrong place. Yeah. Right. So job one is to get that layers. Unfuck the order of content. Big idea. How the world is changing. What the problem is that you address. Who else solves this problem? what your basic solution is. And, you know, that's the, that's the beginning order. If you don't have those things in that order, you likely don't have a, uh, a pitch organized. So the content layer, just getting the stuff in the right order in the right amount of detail. Then there's the next thing you're talking about in, in a flash roll is the performance layer. Once you have the content in the right order, in the right amount of detail that the buyer's mind wants to receive. Yeah, just a quick, quick sidebar, Doug. People say, hey, Orrin, what, you know, what, how do I overcome objections? What do you do to <laughs> right. get objections? Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, don't, I haven't had objections in years. Why, why don't you get objections? Because I give people the fucking information that they want in the order they want it and the amount of detail they need in that presentation, and their mind is filling up with the things they need to know to process my idea and my opportunity, and they don't just in the middle – um, you headed off at the pass. Yeah, headed off at the pass. Thank you. That's that's what I was trying to say. So so once you get the content right, like that will probably raise the conversion rate, the win to lose ratio, the probability of closing, whatever you want to call it. That in itself will just improve your pitch, right? And pitch anything. A lot of that was just the content layer. Then there's the performance layer. Right. And that includes things like tone and speed and tonality and and, you know, whether you swear or not. And, and mm -hmm. um, but but more importantly, you know, that's the craft of giving the information. And within the performance layer, I do think there's times when you want to give people technical information. And I would say this. Very few salespeople, very few executives, very few CEOs can operate in two different modes. Right. Mode one is to go very, very deep on technical information. Today, everything's technical. I don't care if you're selling plastic Santas. And isn't that where also where a seller seems to take a lot of refuge because they're uh, comfortable with their own product knowledge? That's right. So sellers go very deep on technical stuff, but they get stuck there. Right. Once they start going deep on tech, they just sort of, for whatever reason, get stuck in, in tech mode because they feel like they're teaching the buyer about their product and about the features and about the aspects. And when we've all done it, we've all, you know, a question comes up on the technology or, you know, where the features, whether yeah, it's, it's like, Oh, Oh, I know the answer. I know the answer. <laughs> yeah. And it's some, right. And the other thing is you're telling the truth and anytime you're selling and you get to tell the truth, it feels awesome. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so they go deep, into this technical stuff they're trying to teach. What I believe in most pitches, most presentations, the sellers don't actually want to, or the buyers don't actually want to be educated on all those technical features. They want to know that you're an expert in it. Right, right. So, for example, you, 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 uh, Doug, what kind of car do you drive, if I can ask? A Toyota Camry. Toyota Camry. Awesome. So, uh, I call it the chick magnet. Oh, for sure. Well, it's a 2003. Come on. 2003. Perfect. Uh-oh. There goes my status. <laughs> yeah, no, no. So you take your 2003 Camry and it starts making a noise, right? Mm -hmm. And you take it to the mechanic. 
And the mechanic opens, uh, you know, your local neighborhood mechanic, like uh, my parents have one, uh, you know, up the hill from them, and they can work on anything. And they open the hood, they run the engine, and they listen, right? And, like, do you give a fuck if it's the alternator or the fan belt or the transmission or the blinker light or the switch? Like, you don't, right? No. So I want to know. I want it, I want it fixed. Right. Yeah, you have all, you, you know, you don't want to buy drill bits. You want to buy quarter-inch holes. Right? Yeah, and here's what would yeah. upset me, though. Here's so, what would worry me is if they started asking me technical questions. Correct. But, so, so the mechanic goes to you. You go to them. Your mechanic is closed, right? And so you got to take your Camry to another shop. You don't know them. Right, mechanic opens it and he goes, "Oh yeah, I can see what's going on here. So the throwout bearings in the alternator um, seem to be spinning a faster rate in the fan belt because somebody installed a 2703. These 2703s are recommended by the factory. However, they're not really ideal for this motor once they run past three years because of the mileage. Uh, the, you know, they issued a, a service report 27401. We have it up on the wall there. Most people ignored it, but we get a lot of these. We stock about 150 2701 5.3 fan belts and can replace the throw bearing. It's 750 bucks. We do about two a week. If you come back tomorrow morning at nine o'clock, I have it done for you. Uh, 800 bucks start to finish. Yeah, I, I, I've been in, I've seen that movie. Right. So that to me is a flash roll, right? It is not explaining to you, teaching you what's wrong with the car. Right. It's telling you for to showing expertise. Right. And you don't go, well, I'm, I'm sorry. What what uh, throw up bearing number did you say that was? I'm was it twenty seven oh one. Yeah. You just go, oh, man. Right. Versus the opposite. Another mechanic goes, oh, man. Uh, yeah, it is definitely making a noise. That sounds pretty bad. Why don't you leave it here? Right. We'll give you a call tomorrow morning and, uh, uh, you know, give you our thoughts. It's two hundred dollars just to have the diagnosis done. You know, if you don't mind, if you can uh, wait here, we'll fill out a work order. Which of those two situations do you buy from? Well, the latter. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. So that is, I believe, how for sales presentations, information can be more effective, not to do it for teaching and not to do it for comprehension, but to show people that you're an expert. Mm -hmm. And and then I was just going to finish up. I didn't write that much about it, but- the ability to go deep in technical information and then come back out of that deep silo and then start going, continue moving with the presentation, continue moving forward is a, a highly regarded, difficult to do technical to, uh, you know, presentation task. Go deep, go quickly, come back out and start moving with the forward with the general presentation. If you could do that, you'll be highly regarded as a salesperson, business person, peer, and somebody that people want to do business with. Mm, interesting. So, Oren, you said you have a lot of motorcycles and you're not able to ride them as much. Um, I just want you to know that if if you need somebody to ride some of your bikes, I'm here for you, okay? Yeah, just- well, I, I have one. You can see it on Instagram. It's called the Death Trap, and it is, uh, it's gone through a couple riders recently, so it is looking... For that that horse is looking for a new rider. Okay. Where, where, where are you located, Doug? I'm in Virginia. Oh, yeah. I was just in Virginia. The worst run I ever had in my life was in Virginia. 95 degrees, 95% humidity. Yeah. Eight and a half minute mile turned into 13 and a half minutes. So thanks, Virginia. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. If, I, if I'd known, I could have made some, uh, <laughs> some, some, well, some changes. Was- yeah. So... I was there for a meeting at the White House, and so which was nice. That was my one reason to go to Virginia. But it is beautiful. It, it is, but that is a pretty nasty place to be in the summer. Is uh, I mean, it is a swamp. Uh, really, it was a swamp before it became the nation's capital. So, wait, are you talking about the White House? <laughs> I'm talking about the 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 geography and the uh, weather there. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't think this was a political show, but it started leaning that way, so I was just checking. <laughs> yeah, if it's a political show, I'm in, I'm in trouble. So, Warren, as it relates to some of the expertise, though, and the ability to pull back and stop talking about your damn product, explain this um, notion of the pre-wired idea. And specifically, I think a lot of salespeople uh, forget this, is that there's, there's three answers you have to have, or you have to answer three questions. And yeah, yeah. Talk I mean, about that because it seems that um, even if people could just give a little bit of thought to the three questions, it would help them reframe what they're trying to do. 
So when I started looking for better ways to pitch, I ended up somewhere in an article or a book that was talking about movies, right? And there turns out there's like seven notions in movies, man versus man, man versus himself, man versus nature, right? Boy meets uh, girl. Boy meets girl, right? And there's there's uh, and, and you know these you know from the advertising business, right? Right. Uh, and there's like nine of them, and I go, well, why why are these ideas? You know, why are all movies have to fall into these thematics? And I go, oh fuck, because these ideas are pre-wired in the human mind, right? We don't have to explain what's going on. The Matrix. Man wakes up and has powers and other man trying to kill him and bullets and bend over backwards, but not in reality. And like, fuck, right? Cool, but requires a lot of explanation. You know, uh, the, the, what was the, the tale of the, the kid in the boat with the tiger? Um, Pi. Life of Pi. Life of Pi. Thank you. What's wrong with my brain? Life of Pi, right? <laughs> You're the one with a small child. Yeah. You know, what is that? Man against himself? You know, man against nature? But, but right. that – so these thematics are pre-wired in the human mind, and you could just tap into them. So I'd, li I'd listen to this uh, NPR show, you know, whatever it is, the human brain or the brain or the whatever, the human butt. I, I can't remember what the show was. You said butt. Yeah, but <laughs> – <gasps> they went over this thing that was very interesting. You know, why does cocaine drive people nuts, give them energy and excitement and ideas and go all night, right? Uh, I don't know myself. That's not my area of expertise. But the show came up with this thing and said, look, the reason cocaine works, the reason sugar works, the reason porn works is the human mind, the brain physically has receptors for those chemicals, and you're super saturating those receptors that understand the, the properties in cocaine, you know, the biological elements, and it's giving them way more than you would ever find in nature, and people go fucking nuts, right? <laughs> and so that – these two concepts are percolating in my mind. I go, hey, for a pitch, for giving some of the information, there must be ideas. There must be receptors in the human mind that would immediately accept the ideas that I'm pitching. I don't have to explain it. Yeah, the pipe's already laid. Yeah, yeah. The pipe's already laid. The road is already uh, uh, laid. It's, it's funny. This may not be relatable, but since we're talking about motorcycle, when I was a kid, I don't know, I was, lived uh, near Daytona Beach. I think I was like 17, 18, something like that. And uh, we were out for a ride one day somewhere outside of Daytona, and we came across this neighborhood where they had laid down an entire community worth of roads, no houses, no – so it was – fucking racetrack in the middle of nowhere hell yeah right and so we raced around it and it, it's sort of like that where is there a frictionless roadway into the by center of the human mind that you can just put your ideas and they're immediately accepted without friction without anxiety without questions without objections or anything right and so that became the notion for me looking for pre-wired ideas that require no explanation whatsoever, and they're immediately accepted. And they're they're waiting. They're they're receptors. They're they're receptors. And so that's you know with that chapter. I mean, the chapter is called "Prewired Ideas" and how to put the information you have in those couple of formats in which people will immediately recognize and accept the things you're saying without argument, uh, without confusion, without friction, and move on to the next part of the sale that you have. Right. And let's not keep the listener in suspense. Those three questions are... Those three questions are... Why do I care? What's in it for me? And why you? <laughs> I've just been in so many meetings where those things are... They skip over it or they're, they're just not a, addressing it. And if they do, they really stand out. Yeah. So I want to be careful, right? I want to be careful because we can't just sort of walk into a meeting and go... And, and I think this – a lot of books on marketing and sales trivialize these ideas. Hey, what's in it for me? Why should I care? What, you know, what should I do? What's the payoff? Why you? Well, right? Why you, do they – like why do they really care? Not what they're yeah, telling so, you. Right. So you, so you can't trivialize these and go in, hey, I want to tell you – and I see this a lot. Like what's in it for you? I want to tell you why you should care. I want to tell you why you should work with me, right? You can't – Why us? Uh, 
Right, right. Yeah. Why, why ask? You can't be overt. Yes. So overt and direct and delivering that information because you're self-serving, right? Right, but you can let them start to conclude their own, they can start to develop the, their own answers to those questions without you actually having to say them. That's right. If, if you're telling somebody why they should work with you, right, you are being pitchy, you're selling, and you're chasing. You should, oh. not have to, you should not have to say, here's why you should work with me, right? You should not have to say, here's what's in it for you, right? Mm-hmm. There's different ways to put these ideas in the mind of the buyer so they deeply appreciate it and they don't feel like they're being pushed, sold to, or pressured into a particular direction. This is the problem with all the the hustling and uh, the 99 ways to close and overcoming objections and the trial yeah. close, right? The the buyer over, can clearly see that you're pushing them in a certain direction. Like how many how many salespeople have told you, "So, if I could get you, you know, this product at the, you know, at a 15% discount, which is less than anybody else, would, you know, paying, and we could deliver it by the end of the week." That's something you would want, isn't it? <laughs> Right. What's it going to take, Douglas, to get you in this car today? Doug, what, what what is it going to take to get you into these this this car? Doug, what's your dream car, by the way? Since we're talking about cars, oh, uh, maybe a two thousand four Toyota Camry. Ah, you you're talking like a guy with a, you know four or five year olds. Um, I'm you know no I'm I'm not a I'm not a much of a car enthusiast. I'm sorry. What are your what What are your enthusiasms? What are your passions? Well, I have a couple of motorcycles. I I I go hunting. Um, oh, you do what? So, what motorcycles do you have? A couple of Harley Davidsons. Oh, okay. So there goes my status. There goes my status. You have a couple of motorcycles, right? <laughs> I have motorcycles, and we have nothing to talk about in the no. motorcycle world. Yeah. This is my point. You don't have Harley Davidsons, do you? No, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Like that's we, what I'm just, saying. Yeah. we do totally different kind of riding. Now you're probably not going to let me ride your bike because you found out what I have. But yeah, no, fuck off. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> like was, I haven't heard that today. <laughs> here's here's the problem. Here's the problem that if I was trying to sell you something, right, I'd be like, oh, Doug, you wow, you have motor. I love riding motorcycles. What do you have? You know, an Ultra Glide, a Hydro Glide, an FX, you know, an 880. So, like, what's what are your models? By the way, oh me, uh, an Iron eight eighty three and a, a soft tail slim. Yeah, uh, the eight eighty three. Uh, you know, I I think I was like seventeen when I rode my first eight eighty three. It's incredible how iconic that bike has become and just produced year after year. You know, Harley is really um, that's you know one of the things that has made Harley because young people become familiar with that bike, but it's big enough to last through adulthood. It's really, I mean, I'm really excited. So, so you see, like I'm talking. About something that I'm not I'm knowledgeable about a little bit, but not that. <laughs> a minute ago, you called it an 880. So there you go. Yeah, I'm, I'm with exactly. you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like when we do, like when we do email marketing, right? We we do email marketing to very high net worth, high value accounts, and being 80 percent or 90 percent correct in the outbound email, you know, either their name Charles, Charles, Chaz, Charlie, you, you know. In the outreach team, when we're not a hundred percent accurate all the time, we lose the account, right? If we're not, so so if I was going to talk to you about motorcycles and I don't actually know the details, I'm not passionate about it, but I try and rely on that connection to create <laughs> alignment with you, it will fail, right? You mm-hmm. will see through it and you'll go, this is um, glib, this is transparent, this is cloying, this is obsequious, you know, whatever term you want to use, it's not, it doesn't feel real. And that's a problem going back. By the way, I'm answering a question you asked 45 minutes ago, but um, <laughs> I, thought I, I thought I'd hit it again. That's fine. Well, thanks. Well, listen, uh, we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I wanted to ask about a, a, another concept that I think is really important, particularly as it relates to content that marketers are producing, but also obviously in the sales situation. And I'm not talking about Game of Thrones, but this notion of winter is coming. Explain what that is. Yeah. I will, yeah. So this is one of the pre-wired ideas that everybody understands. So if you watch Game of Thrones, it's really so, sort of it's interesting. By the way, have you been watching? Did did you watch the all twenty-five seasons? No, I, I've watched the first episode recently, and it's not my thing. Yeah, so it's amazing really, that you and I are even talking on this uh, podcast because we don't like the same kind of bikes, cars. 
shows. No, I don't mean, you know. No, I, I watched it, but it's not my thing, but it looked like a really terrific show. Yeah, no, I mean, I I, I don't mean to be mean. Like, uh, I love, I respect all motorcycle riders and motorcycle riding. I'm just, you know, trying to create some contrast. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's like yeah. it's like saying, uh, it's just, it's, it, it's not working. You're from Jersey? I'm from Jersey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that right. sort of thing. It, yeah, so I'm just you know trying to create relevance for for that idea. I mean, there's there's 25 different kinds of fishing. So just because somebody likes, you know, fishing, what ocean fishing, fly fishing, stream fishing, right. You know, fishing from the beach, like it doesn't mean a fucking thing. And if it's not true, don't chase it for rapport, right? There's much more rapport uh, in in you know caring about solving people's problems than there is trying to say, I like fishing. Anyway, yes. um, winter is coming. So Game of Thrones, they, the show you know, is, is dwarves making love to you know, um, kings and queens fighting and uh, an ice wall and all kinds of – but whenever they run into trouble with the relationships and the complexity of the show and the characters, the one thing that they, solves everything, right? And whenever they get in trouble, they just go, ah, winter is coming. And all the seasons use this as the rescue device because everybody understands it's a pre-wired idea. When winter comes, it doesn't matter what your alliance is, who you're fighting, who you're making love to, who you're cheating on, what your goals are. You're going to freeze to death unless you have somewhere to sleep, people to be in a clan with, warm you know, ability to make fire, and food. You're going to die. Mm-hmm. And so – if you think about this and take it into business, every single business has some element of huge environmental change coming. Regulations, tax, technology. You know, most of the time it's technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, Workforce uh, age, stuff like that. Age of um, obsolescence, right? Uh, you know, apartment. We have we have a client that redoes apartment buildings in the Palo Alto area because eventually the building gets so old. And the workers become need a totally different set of amenities, right? That every real estate, apartment, I don't semiconductors, I don't care what industry, there's some change is gonna wipe everybody. I'll give you an example. When stadium theaters, not not the ones you guys go to, Doug, you know, with your family with they serve sushi and beer and the seats recline, just the regular stadium theater where you can see two feet over the head of the guy in front of you. Mm-hmm. When stadium theaters came in, it was a nuclear winter. For every other kind of theater, the flat ones where you know a guy sits down, you can see over his head. Like <laughs> when I five foot eight sit down in front of you, you like you couldn't see over me. Not minute bowl, right? Right. Um, and and so stadium theaters were a nuclear winter for every other kind of theater. Completely wiped them out. And unless you understood that industry and what to do when a stadium theater started moving into your territory, you were gonna die as a piece of real estate. So that's a good example of winter is coming when a when a good stadium builder moves into a market, every other theater is going to get killed, right? So every industry has that, whether they realize it or not. Whether they realize it or not, uh, you know, the cloud wiped out, you know, how many IT trillions firms, of dollars yeah. of mm-hmm. on-prem, uh, you know, software services and companies, and and you know, as I wrote in the book, Microsoft barely turned the corner. You know, through that nuclear winter, it's moving mm-hmm. from you know on-prem hardware to the cloud. So anyway, when this is what I like to show my buyers that a cold winter, a an in massive environmental change, is happening in the industry. They're aware of it, but they ne- may not be uh, aware of how deeply, uh, how fast it's moving, and how deeply penetrating it is. And I'm the one who knows how to operate once this massive environmental change happens, right? And that is what makes buyers want to follow you into the product or service or idea area that you're in, that their world is going to be dramatically changed environmentally by something that's confusing and difficult to deal with, and it's going to change everything. So I just put a little um, uh, perspective on this. You know, I used to want tell buyers, hey, this is a problem that you're having and are going to have, and it's going to get worse. And then my rhetoric evolved, uh, you know, my storytelling evolved, and then I started naming the enemy, right? Giving the problem a name, and that was a better area of sophistication. And you know, the environmental gl- climate change, 
right? Um, the 5272 tax regulation of 2020, right? And then naming the enemy. And now the more sophisticated way that I do it is the environmental changes happens that nobody is going to escape. See, when you tell somebody, hey, there's this problem that you have, I've identified the problem, um, it's a dangerous problem to have, they, you know, a lot of buyers feel like, ah, oh, not me, I can outsmart it, we know how to deal with it. But when you frame it as an environmental change that will affect everybody, then they don't think they can outsmart the problem. Mm-hmm. You're not going to outsmart stadium seating if you operate a theater, that's for sure. Right. So there's a winter out there, and I think if uh, people think about that uh, and talk about that, it would certainly be more effective than talking about their features and benefits of their uh, product. So, Oren, last question I want to ask about the book, and it was uh, I just wanted to quote from uh, page 141. It says, uh, so if you had to guess, what types of professionals are the most optimistic? There's no question about it. Entrepreneurs and salespeople. By definition, their job is to seed optimism. They're programmed to promote a vision of the future in which your biggest problems are solved, your life becomes easier, and your dreams are checked off one after the next. Just buy now, and you will look better, feel better, make more money, get the girl, be parent of the year, and rise in the social hierarchy to become a beloved role model for the regular citizens to admire. Given the nature of their profession, salespeople are programmed to be optimistic and push you in the direction. But, Oren Claff, you argue that it's pessimism, not optimism, that is the formula for success in sales. Why is that? Yeah, so big, big topic. Until somebody views your product, service, idea, yourself negatively in some way, as they're advancing to the buy decision, there's this nagging feeling that they should do that. They should, right? Like, where's the catch? Where's the catch? Did I do due diligence? And so, so, you know, Doug, you've been around a while. And when do you think you first heard this term due diligence in your business life? Oh, gosh. 30 years ago. 30 years ago, right, right. And it was, it's a pretty technical term in business. You have lawyer, you know, when you're buying a company, selling a company, you're doing due diligence. Maybe when you're signing. You hear lawyers say it a lot. Lawyers, uh, you know, M&A, yes. uh, finance professionals. Um, you know, maybe when you're signing a big agency account, you're looking, you got to get them through compliance. Mm. You got to put the client through due diligence, right? You're buying a, um, a but, but now like you have two housewives in, in Wichita Falls, Texas, buying a new refrigerator, right, and discussing it, and they go, did you do due diligence? <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, it's jumped the shark. <laughs> it's like become a term of art in our culture. Yeah. It's still kind of jargony in my book. I don't, I don't like hearing it, but I know what people mean by it. Yeah, I, I hear it all the time. You know, hey, you know I, what else? There's a lot of companies that do it, and things still go badly. They still go badly, for sure, but it's a term of art. You know, my five-year-old goes into a skateboard shop and, uh, you know, he's looking at a skateboard and he goes, Dad, let's do due diligence on this board. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, but their parent is is Oren Claff, so. Yeah. On. Oh, my God. That's a whole nother thing. Parent, Oren Claff is a parent. Okay, so there's a sense in people, whether they call it due diligence or they call it pessimism or they call it questions or they call it objections, they feel like, if they just roll over, let you pitch them and they just roll over, right, that something is going wrong. They, they feel in their mind they're just hurtling towards something and they're going to get pregnant. <laughs> right. So like the pessimism is, again, is that an example of tapping into some pre-wired stuff? Uh... Yeah, it's absolutely pre-wired. Until somebody goes through that pessimism process, they're always they're, the, the chance is that the deal just doesn't close, right, that they – yeah, so so why wait for them to go through it on their own? That's when you get like that's when yeah. you get objections, right? Because you let me make this real. We had a, a company come in and they were a Uber like service for women with only women drivers. So they only parked with women and they only had women drivers, right? And so the CEO is pitching me uh, the deal, and about fifteen minutes in, I go, "I'm sorry, Susan, just quick question: Is this even legal, right?" <laughs> And she goes, oh, we always get that question. Well, fuck. <laughs> Why isn't this? Answer it before you, I ask. Why isn't this the third thing you say in minute one? By the way, this, why, why isn't this the first thing you say before you even begin the pitch? By the way, just want to let you guys know, 
This has been through compliance and legal. This is perfectly legal. Let me tell you about our service, right? right? And so people are going to have pessimism naturally. If they don't have it, they're going to be resistant to closing and continue to ask for discounts and retrading and all those kinds of things. So you, so it's not optimism is only useful in the sense that you showing people that you're passionate about your product, your service, your business, and that you won't stop when you're tired. You'll stop when you're done, that you believe in what you're doing. That's what optimism is for. But they have to go through pessimism and see some negative side of you, you know, and, and that things might not work out until you've, you've actually admitted there's a possibility that things might not work out. It's hard for you to move forward in the sale, but more certainly, you're not going to achieve an inception. Until somebody has gone through the pessimism process, they're not just going to come up on their own with the idea to work through you because they haven't gone through all the internal systems required for somebody to say, I love this. I want to go for it, mm -hmm. right? And so that's, to me, what pessimism is about. If somebody hasn't experienced it and you haven't guided them through it, then they're just going to do it on their own. Yeah, and don't wait for that. Yeah. Right. So, Oren, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? For me, it's this, that inception is possible, that you can put ideas in somebody's mind, right, in such a way and nurture them in a half-hour meeting, one-hour meeting, you know, a couple meetings, that to the point where the buyer goes, you know what, I'm really excited by this, I'm ready to go. And you haven't used any clothes or trial clothes, any clothes, overcome any objections. They just go, I love this, when can we start? I want to put that in people's mind that not only is that possible, it's not that difficult, and that flip the script makes that formula completely available to everybody. And unlike the movie Inception, the approach you have in the book is actually believable. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. So what books have inspired your work and career, aside from the ones about motorcycles and cars? Yeah, this is a great, that is a great question. So, you know, the books that are on my shelf, not to be cliche, are, you know, the, the books from the Stoics, Epictetus, you know, things that are, give you a way to view the world without all the social attachments on it. You know, I have a ton of cars, but you could take them all away tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You know, I have motorcycles. This is, by the way, you know, if, if you are in Southern California, stop by here. This is gadget central. Oh, we buy everything. There's nothing. There's no gadget you can think of that we haven't bought two of, and probably three. Um, Sounds like fun. Yeah. So it is, and and I love that stuff, right? But I do appreciate the stoic ethic. You take it all away. As long as I have someone to love, my family, something to do, my writing, and something to look forward to, then I've got happiness, and that's that's the stoic ethic. Oh, that's terrific. It's just last, uh, in the last year or so, I've discovered uh, uh, more about that. I took uh, Ryan Holiday's 14-Day uh, Stoic Challenge, uh, the first 14 days of January, and, you know, I've read some of uh, his uh, great books, like uh, Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy. There's just a, a burgeoning uh, interest in uh, Stoicism that I'm really happy to see. Yeah, I actually got a nice note from Ryan uh, the other day, so... Um... Nice. Yeah. And he's got a, another one coming out uh, in uh, 2019, I believe. I think it's like the, the third of the, the trilogy of those first two that I just mentioned. So Yeah, his, his publisher, uh, we, have this, we share the same publisher. Yes. So oh, that's right. That's right. So beside Ryan Holiday's new book, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend, have heard about, or are looking forward to reading? Yeah. So there's a book. Uh, actually, I just blurbed it. It's called The Three-Minute Rule. The Three-Minute Rule. I haven't heard of that one. Yeah, it's just coming out. I blurbed it. It's by Brant. Pinvidic. He's a Hollywood guy, and I really like it. Oh, terrific. I'll have to check that out. And we will include a link to uh, that book, and we'll include a link on the show notes at Marketing Book Podcast to pitchanything.com, your LinkedIn profile, Twitter, all the, the, the things that should be linked, as well as other uh, books that we've, we've mentioned. Uh, and I also hope that listeners will reach out to you and thank you for uh, being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Flip the Script, 
getting people to think your idea is their idea. The author is Oren Claff. Oren, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Hey, Doug, I appreciate it. You're a good interviewer. I've had a lot of bad ones over time, and this was enjoyable for sure. And that closes the book on episode 240 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Hrefs. To start getting more of the right kind of traffic to your website, start your seven-day trial for just $7 by visiting hrefs.com, spelled A-H-R-E-F-S.com. And don't forget to let Dougie Fresh know about it. And please join us next time as we welcome Tiffany Bova to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about her book, Growth IQ. Get smarter about the choices that will make or break your business. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Amanda Harrison. Any um, questions you had for me before we start the recording? What time is love? That's my one question. Okay. I'm going to need to get back to you on that.